0: okay good afternoon everybody very happy that you could all come out and that we can talk about this exciting topic for all of us not only in this part of the world but it's going to touch every part of the world the The future of work uh... is something that's been widely explored in all sorts of different fora uh, over the past couple of years it was the topic for the G20 last year and the G7 also, um, but very fortunately, uh, the ILO convened a global commission on the future of work, and they've come out with uh, some of their very, their key proposals for considering this topic and uh, taking it forward and it really is an initial set of uh, proposals as you'll hear which will take a lot of further discussion and embodying embodying to turn into uh, real changes in governments around the world and in the opportunities in the workplace Um, for those of us living in the united states uh, we have one set of challenges and opportunities in front of us. Uh, for those of us who are from other parts of the world, uh, especially in countries with less prosperity, it's a, it's a different set of challenges that st- stand in front of them. Um, but with all those different variations, there is widespread agreement that in addition to the tremendously difficult circumstances in many places right now uh, for uh, the possibilities of a good work environment for a career with the various waves of technology that are expected to sweep through economies all around the world, that's going to become more complex Um, and it will be challenging for countries with a lot of resources. It will be even more challenging in, in many ways for countries with less resources. And so having these opportunities to explore the issues, to talk them through, and to persuade people to turn good ideas into good action is all the more essential. Um, so I'd, uh, I'd very much uh, welcome our, our three colleagues here today with us. Uh, John Irons from the Ford Foundation, uh, Frederica Salio, Saliola from the World Bank, and uh, our our speaker, who I'd like to invite up, Kevin Cassidy, representing the International Labor Organization. And Kevin's going to start us off by giving uh, talking through some of the key findings from this study. And then uh, John and Frederica will, uh, will add commentary afterwards. And then we can have a group conversation, and all of us can participate. So, please, Kevin.
1: Great, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, for coming here today. Uh, The ILO's rationale for the Global Commission. The Global Commission is not an ILO body. It uh, convened this body of uh, 25 uh, 25 experts from around the world, led by the the President of South Africa, Ramaphosa, and the Prime Minister of Sweden, uh, uh, Stefan Löfven. The ILO observed for a while that there are a number of forces that are Uh, transforming the world of work. These represent major challenges and uh, as well as opportunities uh, and it really depends on how societies will deal with these challenges and uh, put forward the uh, necessary changes. Some of them uh, can be rather uh, difficult for the existing uh, structures. Those challenges include technological changes, climate change, demographic shifts Um, In the digital technology, um, tremendous opportunity, but uh, we also are concerned that the platform economy could recreate 19th century working conditions, so the disempowered uh, worker who is on their own. Um, Also meeting the goals of the Paris uh, climate change agenda, this could lead to at least six million uh, jobs lost, but if the right measures are in place, we estimate that uh, 24 million jobs could be created. And also on the demographic side, uh, world populations are in decline. Uh, many countries uh, are uh, below replacement level, except Africa, which has a 12 percent increase. Uh, Europe is having a negative 14 uh, percent growth. So without new workers to help generate this economic growth and paying taxes, contributing to social programs, uh, how are governments going to generate the revenue streams to build the infrastructures that are necessary, the educational upgrades that are required, and to provide for aging populations? So the Global Commission was established in uh, August of 2017 uh, and it was looking at these long-standing issues um, the commissioners decided to develop a short and concrete political report uh, designed to provide signposts for decisive action for all stakeholders this is not just the job of the governments or the workers or the employers alone or even civil society and other actors I think we all have to uh, do our measured best to see where we can assist and move that forward so Uh, In terms of this, we have three uh, main pillars of recommendations, um, and uh, it calls for a human-centered agenda on the future of work. Um, This approach reorients the economy towards a human-centered growth, economic and social policy, and and business practices. Um, We hope that it is a bold set of prescriptions, and uh, we are hoping that this will help realize the full potential and realization of individuals and their rights at work. The first set of recommendations are under the heading of uh, Investing in People's Capabilities. Secondly is Investing in the Institutions of Work, and thirdly, Investing in Decent and Sustainable Work. This human-centered approach supports decent work. It helps to address formalization, end to working poverty, boosting labor productivity, and supports investment in the real economy. So, a simple task for us ahead. So in terms of the first set of of recommendations under investing in people, we see this as the cornerstone of a reinvigorated social contract. Means that it's not just about investing in human capital, you know, the utility of an individual at the workplace, but supporting a broader human uh, development agenda, including rights at work. Um, And as we know, labor rights are human rights. Uh, These four core elements are universal recognition of lifelong learning and the establishment of rated systems for people to skill, reskill, and upskill. We don't believe that front-loading your education uh, for 30 years and then having a 30-year career is sufficient in today's environment. We need to have the ability to learn as we move forward. Secondly, we need to support people in transitions, transitions at work. Um, At our different stages of the working life, uh, we will move into different jobs. Uh, This also includes provisions for uh, looking at uh, employment uh, insurance systems, allowing workers to take time off uh, for training. It also means reconfiguring policies and training systems and public employment services. The uh, third uh, recommendation is on gender equality, uh, and this is absolutely essential to having a transformative and, uh, uh, agenda in the future. Um, we should not be including more gender-based and balanced parental leave, more public care services, pay transparency, uh, and also specific measures uh, to ensure equal opportunity uh, in technology and, uh, and in business models that unfortunately perpetuate a gender-bias model. And, uh, and at the core of that as well, too, is eliminating violence and harassment in the workplace. The uh, fourth uh, recommendation under this uh, uh, first investment is lifelong universal social protection. Uh, this includes a social protection floor. Uh, which enables workers to navigate work transitions. Many people stay in jobs because the benefits are not transferable. Um, so we need to change that model. Uh, it requires, uh, as we could imagine, uh, changes in reallocation of public spending, increasing tax revenues where it makes sense, uh, because contributory and individual schemes uh, are not enough by themselves. Moving on to the second, uh, set, or the second pillar, investing in the institutions of work. Here we're speaking about uh, relations, contracts, collective agreements, inspection systems, uh, et cetera. Uh, these are the building blocks to a just society. Uh, and they have to be revitalized. Um, So we recommend uh, establishing a universal labor guarantee for all workers. I think you have the document in front of you which outlines these. Um, Basically, we're talking about having the the guarantee of fundamental rights and basic working conditions, adequate living wages, limits on the hours of work, um, safety and health protections, and this is a, a starting point from which to build an inclusive labor market. So, regardless of whether you're in a, uh, a formal job or an informal job, this universal labor guarantee should apply to all workers. The uh, second prescription under this investment in institutions is looking at time sovereignty, uh, giving workers greater choice and control over their working time, including maximum limits uh, where the employer's needs are taken into account, uh, but having that flexibility. Uh, this also uh, looks to guarantee a minimum for on call workers. Uh, Next, we look at the revitalization of collective representation and social dialogue. For the ILO, social social dialogue is a basic right. Um, This dialogue will also help improve the legitimacy of the decisions and help support wage policies. Um, Collective bargaining is one way in which wages are set. Uh, This has fallen uh, by the wayside in many uh, countries and in many uh, sectors. Uh, We need uh, to uh, connect, um, you know, workers who are in the digital economy as well, too, and there are ways to use technology in order to help give voice to workers and adapt the strategy to include informal workers as well. Uh, The last recommendation in this particular area is uh, the human in-command approach to technology. The ILO has been founded on the premise that labor is not a commodity. As Joe Stiglitz uh, once referred to it, we're not a piece of steel or a piece of wood you put into a machine and then comes fully formed on the other side. We have dreams and aspirations. We have families. We have uh, uh, ideas for ourselves. So the individual themselves has to be the center of this, uh, of this technology. It's not technology for technology's sake, but how does technology help improve people's lives, and how do we ensure that that technology supports decent work? the third set of recommendations that we have looks at increasing investment in decent and sustainable work we look to support long-term sustainable investment in key areas that support the transformation we want for example the care economy the green economy the rural economy and infrastructure development which can create millions of new jobs in the care economy for example we could generate 500 million jobs by 2030 Um, And with those investments in training and formalization, these could actually be good and decent jobs. For the rural economy, which accounts for two out of every five people in the workforce today, um, we need to see stronger land and tenure rights. We need to see women's rights being respected, access to energy, improved infrastructure, financial services that create small uh, small business enterprises and opportunities for decent work, and also for those small enterprises to integrate into global supply chains. Um, The second recommendation under the increased investment in this section is reshaping business incentive structures to encourage long-term responsibility in the real economy. For example, adopting new indicators of progress that move beyond GDP. Um, We find that to be an adequate uh, indicator of policy success. We need to track human-centered progress. Uh, we need to uh, judge, uh, judge our progress and our activities in the terms not just of the government spending or the value of the goods, um, but how that's impacting and improving people's lives. Um, companies should also extend stakeholder representation so that they are more generally accountable. Uh, there are several countries where workers actually sit on the boards of many companies, so when the decisions are made for investment, for training, for a new market uh, to open up, Um, the people who are actually making the products, the people who have actually helped develop and and create the wealth uh, in that particular enterprise, that they also have a a stake in that as well too. And this uh, looks at advisory councils as well as regulatory bodies. And uh, lastly, in in that section, we're looking at uh, measuring the success long-term and more inclusively. For example, quarterly financial reporting, Um, should be uh, replaced by making bottom-line reporting more generally reflective of the activities and impact. The short-termism of most of the businesses today are not allowing for the long-term investments to be made, uh, which could create greater sustainability uh, for the businesses themselves and for the economies more generally. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at raising household incomes, increasing purchasing power through fairer wages, through employment uh, for decent work, and social protection guarantees. Uh, We should support consumption, this will support consumption and then higher uh, demand for goods and products uh, made by these uh, businesses. The human-centered development agenda also offers a way to boost labor productivity through improved skills, better and uh, and even access to technology and greater investments in the real economy. So how are we going to look at this responsibility? All actors including governments and multilateral institutions, will have a role to play and need to take responsibility for delivering the recommendations of this report. We recommend that all countries create national strategies on the future of work taking into account their own circumstances. There is a great uh, disparity between the high income and low income countries, developing countries, countries in transition. Um, Even uh, as I've noticed at the UN, many countries that have graduated from low income to middle income still have lots of development issues uh, economically and socially. Um, And even though they are in another category, they still require a great deal of uh, support and assistance. The family of multilateral institutions uh, also need to play an important role. And uh, this can help the issues win greater credibility. In particular, the ILO is asking for greater coordination between the World Trade Organization, uh, the IMF, and the World Bank, uh, because we need to have better and uh, coherent policies. Because there are strong and complex linkages between trade, finance, economy, and social policies. Uh, The ILO also uh, can collaborate with uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, and UNESCO. Uh, focusing on safety and health uh, and lifelong learning. Um, In conclusion, the future of work and the societies depend on choices. There's no future of work waiting to receive us. The future of work will depend upon what policies that we choose. how we make these choices to address the challenges of inequality, working poverty, and unemployment, and supporting people through a transition to a carbon-neutral digital economy to take advantage of the demographic opportunities uh, will be a measure of our success. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Clearly the work of a couple weeks to get, achieve all these goals. If I could ask uh, Federica to talk a little bit about this cluster of issues, she had the great pleasure of working at the World Bank on their development report for the world, and it came out last October, which touched on a lot of these similar issues, similarly from the global mission in front of the World Bank. So maybe you could share with us how you all conceived of some of going forward in this area.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, i would be happy to. Well, <laughs> First of all, I would like to spend a few words to for, to congratulate the ILO colleagues, this great accomplishment. I know this this has been a long-term project. And uh, especially I think um, this is a very challenging topic for a number of reasons. The first one is that there are an, an overwhelming number of studies and research about the future of work. So with our IT colleagues, just for fun, we did this exercise. So we typed on you know, any of the you know, you commonly use internet search. Like, if you type the future of work, in uh, 0.81 seconds, you get more than 4 billion results, right, (laughs) so there are anything, from reports to just blogs, articles, so it's really, you know, overwhelming. But more importantly, I think there are two common denominators, right, you know, of all those studies, which I think, you know, this report kind of go against, and, and that's part of my, um, let's say, congratulation messages. One is that the literature around the future of work is very negative, right? I think we most of us read some of those studies where you find these apocalyptic figures, right? How many jobs will be lost in country X or country Y? But oftentimes are also not very robust, but they kind of force us to think that Um, you know, robots are here to take our jobs and the future will be a jobless growth. And so I I, I would like to, I, I was really pleased to see that in the report, there is this message about the fact that technology offers opportunities. Now, as Kevin mentioned, you know, it's very challenging to find the right policies to make sure we seize those opportunities, the growth is inclusive, and, you know, all the other challenges that we face. But technology brings opportunities that we should not forget. The other one is that, that I really another element I really like about the report is that um, it focuses on a human-centered agenda. And this is one thing that we also did in the World Development Report uh, 2019, focus on human capital, you know, focus on people, focus on social protection. And when I presented this report around the world, oftentimes I hear this message, how come when you think about technology, you investigate technology, you come with such a, you know, like passe messages, like kind of old fashioned messages about human capital. Like we've been talking about human capital for many, many years. How come that you bring in the context of the future of work? Well, because you know, preparing for the future, analyzing this issue really showed how large and unfinished is the agenda. If we think how many people are equipped with the you know, basic human capital that we need to thrive in the world of work, to build the skill, to be adaptable workers, well, still very few. So I was really uh, pleased to see that uh, the report has a strong message on that too. And finally, Ariel really would like to congratulate on the 78 pages. I, I, I know that it takes so much effort to write shortest short. report ever. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that that's really difficult to do that.
0: How long was your report Federica?
2: So ours was <laughs> 120 it considered really short well, that's for a WDR. Pretty, that's pretty huh?
0: good. <laughs> that's good. But the,
2: you know initially when we finished it was like 180 so we really had to cut those 60 pages and it took so much work. Yeah. But past WDRs are like 300 400 pages which had to digest uh, so I just would like to point on two aspects that instead are kind of new in this context um, of the future of work, and then later I'll be happy to talk a little bit about the WDR if there are questions, but I just would like to point on those two. One is the concept of lifelong learning, right, that Kevin that highlighted. And this is a new concept, uh, because what this technology does, um, if you look at the pace of technology advances, that changed completely compared to the past. If you look how fast new jobs come to the market, this is really striking. If you think about the iPhones, right? there are so many jobs around the iPhone. If you think about the job of the app developer, there are 4 million app developers today in India, for example. And that's a job that came to the market overnight. Right? The work tenure is going down everywhere. So people not only need to have multiple jobs, but multiple careers. So we need to be very versatile, adaptable workers. And that changes um, two things. One is the way we train workers. We train the supply. But the other one is how we incorporate the demand for jobs. Because so the supply needs to be very adaptable. So we we can build the skill that I demand today, but we need to be prepared for those skills to change very fast. So we need to be trained in a way that we become adaptable. But at the same time, we need to make sure there is that connection with the demand. Because you can get the best training in the world, but if the demand side is not incorporated, if you don't know what skills are in demand in the market, in other words, then you know it's pointless to train. So so it's it's a very important concept that forces us to rethink tertiary education, again, the way we involve the private sector. So I was was pleased to see that that was uh, highly emphasized in the uh, ILO report. Um, I I think that it's it's a responsibility of governments, of of firms, but also of individuals, that I think also individuals need to invest in that because there is no other way to uh, thrive in the uh, future world of work. And the second um, element I would like to emphasize has to do with the digital uh, technology. Kevin emphasized the fact that the report advocates for a a global um, governance system for for digital technology, which I find a fascinating idea, but perhaps very challenging to implement. And I just would like to spend a few words on the digital, which uh, we've been very much focusing on robots, rightfully so, in a number of countries we've seen, we've witnessed robots taking the jobs of, of many workers. But there is, a, a, I would say, a more uh, <coughs> important revolution that we've been so far disregarding, which is the digital revolution. Because that changes completely the way we do business, completely the way people enter the labor market. If you think about an Alibaba, right, which is the Amazon of, of China, like they, they develop a billion-dollar business in only 15 years. We know we have very little resources. Like in the report, we compared the growth of IKEA with the, with the growth of Alibaba, and you can see that what IKEA achieved in 70 years, we talk about global giant, it's nothing compared to what Alibaba achieved in 15 years. So, so it's a growth without mass, but it's also um, allows people to enter the labor market, even if they're not physically in the same country where the firm is. Those firms live in a cloud, right? So you can live in Senegal, and you, know, you don't have jobs in your, in your country, but if you have the right skills and you have the digital infrastructure, you can still work for the US app work, right? So it changes completely the way we, we as I say, run business and we enter the labor market, but they also bring a lot of challenges. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, from a competition standpoint, from a taxation standpoint, right? Because those firms do not uh, avoid taxes uh, because they, they have this digital nature. So it's very hard to think of, of a governance system just because it's very hard to track those businesses. But more importantly, they just force us to rethink the business environment in a broader way. Because if digital platforms bring a lot of opportunities, and flexible type of work, those workers have no protection. So as in that, I agree with Kemi, we almost go back to previous situations where formal workers are no protection. Right? So, so then it forces us to rethink the business environment in a way that includes social protection. Because if, when you think about enabling business environment, it won't be a, an enabling one unless we find a way to protect these people. So they bring a lot of new challenges, but a lot of new opportunities. The bank is launching this African Moonshot project, which aims at digitalize basically the entire Africa region. Because we really think that it won't solve all the problems, but definitely uh, presents good, you know, some solutions at least to that. So with that, I'll I'll just uh, close my remarks. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Federica.
0: So John, could you add a a little perspective from the Ford Foundation and maybe take a little bit further this mix of technology, developed countries, developing countries?
3: Yeah, happy to. And and, um, Thank you for the question and and thank you to uh, CSIS for hosting this event as well. Um, I should note, too, that CSIS produced their own report on the future of work using their own advisory committee. I was on the committee, and I believe you were as well, um, and so I recommend that both in terms of overall recommendations, but also deeper country dives um, into, I think, four different case studies as well, which is interesting to get the, the local context, too. So sometimes it can feel very high level, but bringing it down to the ground is, is very helpful as well. Um, so, so let me start by um, saying that, you know, as we all see, um, the world of work is changing. Um, both in the U.S. and abroad. Um, The time is right for this ILO report, for the World Bank report, and for this discussion today. Um, At the Ford Foundation, we're very pleased to have worked with the ILO on the commission. Darren Walker, our president, was a member of the commission, and these are issues that we think about um, every day, both in the U.S. context as well as in the context of many of the regions in which we work as well. Our overall focus at the foundation is really challenging inequality. And by inequality, we look at areas around social, cultural, political, and economic inequality. And in all of these, especially economic inequality, but all of these, um, it leads us to think about work and and workers in in that context. Um, And we at Ford, like many others, very much see the world of work as increasingly interconnected across the globe. So we see this in terms of global value chains that are connecting economies, capital is mobile, production can be relocated any place around the world. New technologies and business models very much shift and spread across borders at increasing rates. Um, and what this leads to all too often is more precarious work. In the U.S. context, this means part-time, temporary, outsourced, gig-like. We're all familiar with some of those trends um, in, across the globe. We need to recognize, as was mentioned before, that over half of the population lives um, or works in the informal sector with no or few labor protections, Um, and this is a feature of the way most economies around the world work, which leads to very precarious work in those contexts, as well. Um, We also recognize that job and work creation is oftentimes insufficient, and social protections are inadequate. And this was raised up in the ILO Report, the World Bank Report, and others. From the perspective of the Ford Foundation, um, we're very pleased that the outcome of the ILO report stresses this human-centered agenda. And we believe that the recommendations and analysis of the report are very much born out of a lived reality of work, Um, so it really does center the the individual experience in a lot of the recommendations. And we also feel that they made an important contribution to the dialogue in the future of work and provided a clear understanding of ways to shape the future of work institutions um, to disrupt inequality. However, we also believe that the report is only a starting point. the discussions. This is not the final say. Um, And there's hard work ahead to ensure we fulfill the obligation of improving work around the world. And we also believe this will take a global effort um, with participation from governments, from businesses, from civil society, and most especially from workers themselves as part of the, the discussions. So again, a starting point, not the ending point. And also to say that we also feel that representation from the global south is essential to this discussion. It can't be a purely developed economy discussion um, in different kinds of ways. So it's great that we're having this event here in Washington, um, but having the event in other parts of the world, as I know ILO is thinking about doing, is essential as well. So given these interconnections, we also believe that these issues must be addressed um, by a global community. And so we have to push back against isolationist approaches to to deal with these issues. Um, We also recognize that economic inequality is often driven by what we sometimes call the rules of the road. So this means both national level policies, but also global agreements, institutions, et cetera. And these rules are too often written by those with wealth and with power. And so we need to address global power imbalances as well. Um, and this includes making it clear that there are new expectations for the role of businesses in society and supporting work and workers. Um, as the um, ILO has, has um, reinforced, We need to treat workers as people, not commodities. This was said earlier, and and I think it bears repeating. Um, And we're seeing that, in in many cases, this is also making business sense. Um, By companies seeing assets everywhere and in everyone, and by continuing to build mutual relationships to create enduring value, this creates value not just today, but into the future as well. So, in short, we celebrate the work that has been done, and we look forward to working together to ensure that these ideas don't just live in the report, but are translated to lives of workers everywhere. In terms of the technology piece, um, let me echo a couple things that were said earlier. Um, One is that we think that the uh, discussion about will robots take your jobs, and if so, by what year, um, is oftentimes misguided. Um, And that oftentimes it's not about the net number of jobs created or lost, um, it's oftentimes about the gross jobs that are created or lost, uh, meaning that it's the disruptions that can be as important as some kind of a, a net number. And in a world with growing technology or technology that's increasing at a growing pace, The disruptions might be very important um, to to think about. The second thing I would say is that we need to recognize that technology is not just changing the kinds of tasks that are being done. It's not just about work being replaced or changed. It's about the way you connect to work might be be changing. So the job itself might be very standard. You're driving a taxi or you're working in someone's home. But the way you connect to the job might be very different. And and in my view, those changes are at least going to be as profound as the changes to the tasks that, that are being done. So so what does this mean, right? So this means that when you think about technology, it means it's more important than ever to um, not just let technology happen to us, but to think about how do we guide the path of technology in the future. And so there's been some ideas uh, presented through the ILO commission and others, but how do we do that? How do we set the appropriate, I would call it guidelines and guardrails for for both technologies and new uh, business models that are enabled by those technologies as well? So this is something that I think is very much worth further discussion, so I'll, I'll
0: leave it there. Great. Thank you very much. Um, Indeed, I'm going to recommend again the CSIS report. Also looked at four middle-sized developing countries and had case studies of each of those countries, as well as then a, a more widely applicable set of ideas and recommendations. And then before that, I will give a pitch for a paper that we did at the Wilson Center on workforce development in North America which was looking at Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And I just want to mention that a little bit because in this case you have two fairly developed economies. Mm. And what we found in looking at it is that none of them really had a national approach to workforce development in the face of technological change. There were, one, there were some wonderful examples in all three countries of local initiatives dealing with this, but there was, not a uni- there was not a good national approach in any of the three. And there was no dialogue between the three, despite the fact that they build things together and they have this massive production network that ties them all together. So you can thus see that there's a whole range of situations around the world where different countries are at different stages and different capabilities of responding to this. So maybe let me take, go from that forward and ask for a, a few ideas of how then we take this forward and start building consensus for action, especially because you have these different layers of capacity and interest globally in different regions, De- depending on income and prosperity in countries. So, so please, ideas, whoever wants
1: to suggest. I'll jump in quickly into the deep end of the pool here. Um, with the ILO, since we're an international organization that has a what we sometimes call tripartitism, but I guess most people understand as a multi-stakeholder initiative, government workers and employers, uh, but we also work with civil society and, uh, and other groups, uh, academics as well. Um, In the International Labour Conference, which will take place in June of this year, it's an annual event, um, we will put the the report on the table. Um, Most of the people have already seen this report. And we'll start to look at the constituent parts and how each country uh, could enable uh, some motion on that. Um, The report does ask for a uh, a national strategy. Uh, You've mentioned workforce development. We look at it much broader as the future of work. Uh, which looks at investments and changing of business models and also of uh, legislation that is required, the rules of the road that John had mentioned and how we can get rid of some of the biases that have impacted upon uh, gender issues and the like. So I think having an international consensus of what are the kind of starting points dependent upon your level of development because everyone will have different levels of that. The ILO also provides technical advice and uh, uh, we're not the only ones. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, not only the family of UN agencies, but the multilateral system as well too. So this uh, means the kind of regional organizations, the economic commissions and so, and that we all have a part to play in that. This is, uh, this is a big task and it's a heavy lift. Um, So there are no easy uh, uh, um, uh, paths forward on this. Um, A lot of it does depend upon our analysis. Analysis has to be driven by data and as we were uh, I think musing a bit earlier that uh, data quality and integrity is always a concern so investment in that uh, in the collection of that data is really quite important and having the harmonization of, uh, of what data we are collecting because we want to measure apples and oranges um, I think in many ways uh, some of the advanced countries have a, have an opportunity but also lots of barriers because of uh, uh, because they are uh, much more developed and uh, and ingrained in, in ways of acting um, some of the uh, the The least developed countries actually might even benefit because they they don't have those barriers and they can put in place policies and investments uh, that can actually help leapfrog. So I I don't think that there's one clear path forward but I think the most important thing is that all institutions, even uh, think tanks such as this institution and others who have been focused on this, need to bring those ideas forward. We need to have conversation. Um, For me, in this office we are embarking on the centenary of the ILO and we are engaging in discussions all across the United States and universities and think tanks, we encourage those who are out there uh, either viewing live stream or those here to join us and have that discussion as well, too, and contribute to that discussion.
0: Thank you. Federico, what 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 are you doing from the World Bank perspective to build consensus and paths forward?
2: So I think that the built consensus, um, that's of course a very challenging task and probably an impossible task. Um, One positive aspect of such wealth of research is that we've been having many discussions around this agenda. And oftentimes, um, you know, we we manage to smooth angles and, and to work more jointly with a number of important key stakeholders. So the World Bank. Um, so the two main recommendations coming out from the WDR are invest in human capital and, and enhance social protection. And the way the World Bank um, operationalized those recommendations are in two ways. One is through our lending projects. So we have operations all over the world where we work with governments to basically uh, either reforms or, or you know do different projects that basically we support financially, or we do a lot of technical advisory work. So through those two, we influence the agenda of the countries and it's our way to operationalize um, the recommendations. For example, in, in the context of our human capital recommendations, as I mentioned earlier, there is this large and unfinished agenda because when you look at human capital across the globe, then you see that not everybody has basic health and basic education. So the bank put forward a new index this year that looks uh, across 162 countries. We look at you know basic health and basic education and we convert it in one number that tells you how much you lose in terms of productivity if you don't invest in, in those. And the way we operationalize this agenda of improving basic human capital, um, it is through a program that is called Early Adopters, for example, where a country worked with the World Bank for three years and we think together how we influence the, those important outcomes. Now, in doing so, we work in close coordination with many uh, important partners, with think tanks, we work with the ILO, work with the IMF, with the Inter-American Development Bank and others. Personally, I think we could do more from, from that standpoint, given how much work we've been all doing, how much knowledge we bring to the table. Uh, but so far, I think um, you know, we've been working in, in close collaboration. For the social protection, well, we <coughs> change our approach, um, and, and the idea is to provide universal social protection. As we mentioned, the way people work is changing significantly, right? Think about gig workers. Those are unclassified workers because they are not self-employed. They are not wage workers, so they don't receive any social protection. But one results that, unfortunately, we, we highlighted in the report is that informality has not changed across the globe. So he is incredibly stable for the past 30 years. So also those workers don't get any social protection. So the new approach that we are already implementing, it is to provide universal social protection in terms of social assistance, and in terms of social insurance, and complement this universal approach in in providing people a minimum income and and, then subsidize social insurance, with more balanced labor regulation where also firms could, could uh, adjust to the changes. So we're already implementing that through operations and, and technical advisory work. As I said, it would be nice to have more you know, global interaction and one voice, but it's also, you know, to be realistic, that would be, I think, uh, really difficult. But there is room for improvement.
0: Sure. <laughs> so, so John, so we have, broadly speaking, five groups of key actors. To try to bring together, government, uh, the private sector, businesses, educational institutions, labor unions, civil so- other civil society. So, what is what do you see as the most promising ways to start bringing some of those groups together in a way that at least gets some pilot cooperation going forward? Yeah,
3: yeah I mean, I'd, I'd say a couple things. Um, first, I think. In, given how you laid out the problem about countries being at different levels of development and, and ability to tackle these issues, I think it's important to recognize that even within countries there are multiple different economies. Um, and so even the distinction of country by country by country, we need to have, I think, a more um, nuanced vision of what things look like within countries. If you're a migrant worker on the outskirts of Beijing, you look very, you have different prospects than if you are a formal worker um, working in, in a more modern um, setting. Um, so having said that, I think the, you're right, there's multiple different parties come here. The, the question I have in my mind is how do you bring people together with um, equal power, right? So it's not the businesses necessarily setting the agenda for what these regimes look like, or it's not necessarily one of the five who are setting the agenda, but how do you really bring in, as like I said before, the worker voice into the discussion with real ability to shape things at, at the table? Um, so we can always bring people together and talk. Um, I think that we've shown that a lot. I know everyone here has been to a 1,001 Future of Work events like this, maybe not quite as good as this one, um, <laughs> but have been to many of these. Um, but I think you pose the right questions. How do you bring this to action? Um, I don't necessarily think that consensus is necessary to, to spark action, um, but the dialogue is certainly a first step. And so I think when I think about this, there's both the institutions, so I'm glad the World Bank and the ILO and others are tackling this head on. So it's not a side issue, it's not a discussion about growth with a little bit about workers, it's really centering workers. I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, but then you're right, is how do you take that to the next step, bring in a broader set of stakeholders um, to push this forward. Um, and I think you look at how do you do that at a national level, how do you change national level policies? A lot of good recommendations in both reports. But then how do you change the international rules and regimes too? So we need to negotiate a trade agreement. How do you bake in a universal labor um, guarantee into a trade agreement or an investment agreement. Um, I think that's an interesting question to tackle. Um, how do you think about when the WTO it gets involved, how do, you, how do they think about these kinds of issues, and how do you ensure that all the global multinational institutions are really thinking about this on a sustained basis, not once every 100 years. Um, I'm exaggerating, but um, make sure that this has sustained activities over, over time. So those are my early thoughts, but if it were an easy thing to do, we would have done it by now, as we all know.
0: So in that same connection, are there some successful models of getting people to focus on informality and caring about those people outside of the social contract? I mean, if we even think about the United States, there's been a lot of articles written about the 20 million males who just are out of the workforce. I mean, they're just not counted anymore unless you're counting all the population and it's hard to get a focus, a set of programs aimed at them. Are there any models anywhere where some people are, are actually having some success in bringing more attention to the version of this problem in whatever country you can, can think of?
3: I'll, I'll give one example from here in the U.S. Um, you know, the Ford Foundation has long supported organizations that have or, or organized informal workers. Um, the National Day Labor uh, Organizing Network, um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance being one. And I'll take that second one as an example. So they've done a lot of work in the care sector here in the U.S. where that work is informal in many cases um, without protections that you see in other more formalized settings, um, disproportionately done by women, by women of color, and by um, migrants. Um, to the U.S. and so, um, and in areas that have been traditionally uh, undervalued um, in our economy. And so we've had some success in thinking about how do you strengthen their power, how do you strengthen their ability to speak out on their working conditions, um, on policies that impact them like minimum wage policies, et cetera. Um, But then also thought about how do you do things like provide benefits that need to from engagement to engagement, and so um, they've actually set up an online platform so that if you employ someone in in the care economy, um, that you can provide additional funding for them for paid sick leave or paid sick days or other other benefits that you would not otherwise have have achieved. So that's just one example from here in the U.S. Um, I think there's a lot of experimentation going on globally. Um, Obviously, this is a really hard issue to tackle. We see a lot of challenges across the globe. Um, but I think it's one that's worth, like I said before, tackling head on, um, rather than leaving to the sideline of, of other discussions.
2: Well, yeah, very, um, very challenging topic. Um, I can think of, there are some countries that are good examples of how they tackle informality, but I would like to re-emphasize that overall, we haven't seen informality changing and And you asked the question earlier, how we can make sure we bring everybody to the table. Well, I think when we think about the voice of workers also in the voice of firms, we need to start thinking in broader terms, who are those workers right? We need to make a find a way to also bring informal workers that oftentimes want to remain unknown because that's the other issue with uh, with uh, with those workers like we we um, we started to think how, for example. Um, digital technology could help with uh, financial inclusion, right? It's a more agile way of providing finance to people. And that could help some of those informal workers to, you know, improve, let's say, their business, for example. But but what what we find is that um, there is a disincentive from those workers to use the digital technology, the, the fintech, basically, because... So you know, at the moment, they, they, nobody knows them. So they don't pay taxes. They don't receive any benefits. But you know, they kind of stay, you know, under the water. Uh, so there is a disincentive in using that technology that would help so many people to get access to finance and improve. At least, you know, they would be better off. I don't know whether they would become fully formal or not, but they would be better off. And there is a disincentive. Like, country like Mexico has been uh, uh, handling this issue in a pretty good way. I would say at least in two fronts. It's hard to talk, you know, for overall. Uh, But they work a little bit on the regulation side, try to make it a bit easier for firms to hire uh, formal workers and to be successful with those reforms. But what they've also done recently, uh, they've been using technology to map out the poor and everybody in their country. Oh. And and you know whether the question is not whether these people become formal or not, the question is how you can make them better off. So they, they use this technology basically to provide uh, better services and to provide social assistance to these people. So in the medium term then you see, you know, improving the, the conditions. Um, you know it could be again become informal but oftentimes there is a disincentive or just you know living a better life. Um, the early childhood development programs, for example, also help a lot in, in this context, right? Because they help the household, and that you know, provide better living condition, the mom can work, um, you know, the, the kids when they grow, they become better workers, so they have more opportunities to find uh, better jobs in the market. So there are, I would say, a few interventions. Um, I can't think of a general uh, rule, to be honest today that you, know, you can apply and, and it makes the economy more formal. But there are many things that, that could be done. And then more importantly, technology is offering a lot of new solutions that you know, hopefully we'll be able to seize in the future.
3: Can I, can I emphasize a point that was just made? I think that um, the notion that the task that we see in front of us is not to formalize the informal workers. That too often it's seen as simply can we shift a worker from informality to formal. Um, if that was easy to do, we would have done that, yeah. right? And given that informality has been stable over 30 years, it suggests that that's not necessarily the right way to go. But how do you improve the working conditions for informal workers, I think that's the task. And that brings us out of purely what you might call labor policy yes. and thinks, makes you think about land use policies, corruption issues, um, technology, how can you use technology. And so it brings you into a broader realm of how do you impact work of the future than you'd have if you had a more narrow Task ahead of you, Do you mind if
1: I, jump in? I, I only hesitated because I think anytime you give an example there's going to be someone who will say well you've forgotten about this you haven't remembered this um, for the ILO we are a membership organization uh, not only for governments uh, which there are 187 uh, but also the workers and employers representatives in each of those countries so if you think it's difficult to have negotiations uh, bilaterally or at the UN uh, just wait till you come to the ILC. Um, So we're representing countries of all levels of of economic development. Um, With that, uh, there are issues of informality, precarious, vulnerable. Um, uh, and, uh, and, of course, the new digital economy, which we concern ourselves with digital day laborers and uh, what may happen in that model as well. Um, but the ILO works through its Decent Work Country Program, which is engaging in dialogue with the country itself, understanding what the needs are of that particular country. Um, so that's how it starts, with the dialogue between the actors of the real economy and understanding the parameters of that problem. We move on with analysis, uh, with research and analysis, with statistics. We look at legislative reform. We're a normative agency We create the rules of the road. Our first convention is on hours of work. So as I joke with students, we've brought you the weekend. So uh, you can thank us on Saturdays. Um, but in addition to that, social protection systems, because of the precariousness that people don't have protections, uh, access to health services, access to education, looking at market analysis, uh, the skills training through the partners, I mean, workers and employers themselves are wonderful at doing this. It's building that capacity locally, providing access to capital, entrepreneurship training. And then I think, as John rightly stated, it is the protection of the rights and the conditions of work of those people who are in precarity that's really quite important. So, But at the end of the day, there's no single silver bullet. I think we have to start with the dialogue amongst all of the parties to move that agenda forward. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you. let shift. We'll shift to invite questions from all of you. I'll just add that uh, just yesterday I was in touch with a, a U.S. app developer who is uh, sharing in Mexico now an app that allows workers to freely rate the place they're working and then share that rating with other workers using their cell phones. And the idea is that this can help empower workers by their own choice to identify the best places to work and shift over there if they don't like working where they're working, and and thus encourage the companies to improve the working conditions there. And so this is, to me, was a great example of technology actually liberating also uh, workers in certain situations. So I invite your questions, but I'll hold up so you can see, you can download these from the the, uh, webpage. This is the CSIS report, and uh, it's called The Future of Global Stability because an underlying argument is if you don't deal well with these problems affecting the workforce, you're gonna have instability in a lot of places around the world, especially when young people don't have jobs. And then I'll hold up, this is the North American Workforce Development Study, which is available on the Wilson Center um, website, too. So please, I saw some questions in the far back, in the second row, first there, waving your hand. Uh, thank you. And maybe you... identify yourself, please, and then ask your question.
4: Yes, hi, my name is Mindy Reiser, I'm a sociologist, I'm also on the governing board of the DC Labor and Employment Relations Association, that's a national association with local chapters. It's a question about what the UN system has been up to and where it's going. I was very intrigued by the creation of the principles for or guidelines for business and human rights. That was developed by a man named John Ruggie and I think it came out in uh, 2015 or earlier, I'm not sure. But I did some searching and I can't tell where that stands now. He was a special rapporteur What is happening with this, and then of course there's the whole world of human rights organizations and how this concern that we have on the future of work interfaces with that much broader world.
1: Thank you. Yeah, if, if I can speak directly to that, um, actually John Ruggie borrowed from the great work the ILO has done. Uh, if you look at chap- if, uh, paragraph 11 and paragraph 12, it says for the purposes of this document, the, uh, the enumerated rights in here are drawn from the ILO's Declaration on Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work as well as the UDHR and the Covenants of International Rights. How is that faring? Well... I think a lot of times this creates cottage industries. There's a group called SHIFT, which is also associated with John Ruggie out of Harvard, which is looking at the application of that. Um, But, uh, you know, it's very tough when these are voluntary initiatives. I think largely that has been the case, that, you know, companies through moral suasion or through uh, corporate social responsibility uh, will uh, adapt all of these or adopt all of these across the board um, we haven't been very successful on that. So, I mean, it's not to say that you must have legislation and that legislation must drive them, but a lot of times if people are not compelled to do it, um, if it's voluntary, um, it, it does have a bit of a, a spotty uh, uptick on that. So, um, but we are encouraged that uh, people are thinking about these issues because 20 years ago, people were not. And I think, uh, like we know with the environmental movement, you know, 50 years ago, if you talked about environmental change, you know, you were a hippie, bark-eating, Birkenstock-wearing, crazy out there, and now this is in the boards and people are talking about it, so it does take time to right that ship, and uh, we're confident that uh, in the end these rights uh, issues in the world of work will prevail. Okay,
0: thank you. There's a question up here in the front row. Uh,
5: Thank you. Uh, Elson Santana, uh, professor at Georgetown, and uh, senior associate here at CSIS. The, the, The I was very impressed by the report, congratulate you. I think it's, it's crucial because work is behind some of the dynamics that we have on the economic political side. But let me take a, a different angle here. You mentioned that uh, labor rights are human rights. And, and the other two also mentioned something in that direction. I, my question is um, the right to organize, in order to defend those rights is at the core of this view so how can we reconcile this with the situation the current situation that tends to go in the opposite direction and in many countries uh, even trying to eliminate the right to organize there is a contradiction serious contradiction here i would like to hear about it
3: I would just say real quickly, yes, I mean, we see the same thing. I think this connects to the first question, too, about the role of human rights organizations. Um, a lot of the work that we do at the Ford Foundation around the world relies on a vibrant civil society, be it the organizations or unions or worker representatives, and we find that it's under threat um, across, across the globe, be it in, um, we have an office in Cairo, in Egypt, where it's very difficult to do our work there. We have offices in Indonesia, in China, and so we see across the world. Um, a push against civil society organizations generally, and so that's I think impacting a lot of the issues around work and the freedom of association and those organizations themselves and their viability in the future is is I think called into question given a lot of what's happening in the world. So we see that as a central a central issue.
1: If I can jump in as well too, and uh, I'm sure there are people here who could uh, give me chapter and verse a better response to that, but. Uh, uh, fundamentally, you know, the freedom of association, collective bargaining, it, it actually is reflected in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I don't know if it's Article 21 or 23, but it is in there, uh, as well as uh, discrimination and uh, child-enforced labor. So that that's ensconced within the sort of uh, those uh, international instruments that have been recognized. Um, freedom of association is not just for workers. It's also for businesses as well, too. Um, you know, you, you've, you've had institutions throughout the years where you belong to a group, and that group assists you. I mean, I think it's, it's human nature that we like to uh, get together with others, but when you're at a disproportionate power relationship, um, it's very difficult to negotiate. You know, a business is not going to negotiate with an individual worker if there are 20,000 people working in their factory and so, so, so I think having that voice, uh, having someone represent your, uh, um, your interests as well uh, is absolutely essential for the, for the full functioning and for the smooth functioning of businesses. So it, it is actually in the interest of businesses to see that. Politically, um, you know, we, as John had said, we, we don't, uh, we, we see actually the, uh, the, the opposite happening. And, and i be honest, before I came to Washington as the director here, I spent a lot of my time in the third committee of the General Assembly uh, looking at resolutions and policy language there. And there is a move away from the rule of law. There were a number of countries, without naming them, which would say, you know, these conventions are old. They don't mean anything anymore. It's a, you know, it's a different world today. So people decide that they are going to uh, discount this entire process of, you know, millions of people, literally, who have contributed to this development of thought about how society should operate, how business should operate. The ILO is not just a U.N. agency. It is an economic actor we look at the nexus between the social and the economic. And we realize that if you do not protect the rights of individuals, both those who own the companies and those who are working for those companies, giving their time and skill and energy and industry in exchange for a fair remuneration, that that society does not move forward. So I think history in the larger sense will prove that out, but I think right now we're at a difficult time where the rule of law is not necessarily being respected.
6: Hi, um, my name is Debulina, I'm a student at Johns Hopkins University. Um, So I was recently in Nepal to do some field research recently on the ethical recruitment landscape in Nepal. And some of the things that we were, and we actually met with the ILO there as well, and we were looking at technology-based solutions to address some of the challenges. Uh, But two things that we noticed was, one, um, the issue of trust with some of these technology platforms that the workers that we were looking at didn't necessarily trust the information that was being shared on these platforms. the second was the role of gender uh, on one app where they basically had the similar sort of function of rating recruitment agencies. Um, the overwhelmingly, the users were I think 97 or 98 percent were male users. So I just wanted to know about in your work uh, what are some of the challenges that you've uh, come across in promoting technology-based solutions and what you've been doing to overcome those. Thank you. Um, so
2: one. I was actually reading a research today about um, gender bias with these digital technologies. Uh, it's, it's becoming really because now that we have more data, it's becoming more evident. But I think it goes well beyond that. It's really an, an issue where I think we haven't been able to find to find the right incentives, right, to work around the gender agenda, unlike others. And one example is that. Every time I go to a gender conference, 99% of people in the room are women for some reason. So, so gender is one. Um, as I mentioned, um, there is a lot of, you're right, the lack of trust for the, um, mostly the privacy, right? Related issues. Uh, and then of course, depends, there are different reasons for that. Um, there is a general a lack of trust. And this is an area where, because this digital technology is so new, we're still trying to find a way to solve that issue. Uh, In general, they bring a lot of uh, regulatory and policy challenges from the privacy standpoint, competition standpoint, as I mentioned, taxation. But because of this digital nature, Um, we haven't been able to adapt that quickly, the the legislation around it. So there is a lot of work around the property rights, and some countries managed to to tackle it a little bit better than others. But, you know, let's say it's work in progress, uh, but still um, there is is the issue, um, as as you know. Uh, One, um, as I mentioned earlier, one area where we struggle a little bit to... um, operationalize, let's say, to implement um, or to convince, let's say, more people to use the digital technologies, as I mentioned earlier, is the FinTech agenda, right? Is the FinTech, let's say, technology. Because that is really where we think it could change completely the, the rules of the game, right? You, you, you have these small farmers that there is no way they can get a loan from a regular bank, uh, but with, through this mechanism, it is proven they can get, you know, small amounts but better access to finance, and there is where there is struggle mostly because the disincentive comes from from the fact that these workers want to stay informal. Uh, one area where we have been very successful, instead, in, in implementing technology, is those digital applications that farmers use, for example, to run their business. Like you know, those applications where you have weather forecast or you teach them how to use fertilizers. On those, you know, there is a widespread use because you only need internet; you don't need any additional technology, and there is not an issue of lack of trust for workers. So that that has been very successful. Um, on the digital platforms in general, that is that there is still a struggle because that requires government intervention, and that brings a lot of other issues um, around the table. So it's still, it's so new that even for us, we just uh, create a new unit that de- just deals with digital technologies, right? So it is still, I would say, not so much knowledge around it, but this is the leader I we share today.
1: Could I just also respond, since you mentioned the ILO on that? Um, certainly, you know, we, we do use technologies uh, to assist in the uh, the application of rights. I mean, for a, a few um, about two years ago, there was a story on seafood slaves in Thailand. Um, you know, we addressed that through uh, a number of uh, solutions and working directly with the industry itself. Um, now there's this, this system of port in port out where there's a GPS tracking of the boats that are going out, seeing how, how long they're out uh, on the ocean and then when they come back in there's uh, a mixture of the customs and uh, law enforcement who are there with their uh, with their little iPads, seeing what boats have come in who was on that boat then they check their mo- mobile phones to see if they've been paid um, but it's amazing how when the people come off the boat after being out there for weeks or months on end they come back in they're you know dressed in very crisp sharp uh, shirts and, and, uh, and pants and so, so we don't know what actually happens out there in those conditions of work. Uh, so, I, you know, do we do more? Do we do, you know, sort of, uh, you know, do we have uh, uh, Wi-Fi cameras on board? Do we, do we have uh, sensors and tags like we do for pairs? Because we know, you know, most uh, big companies can take a pair and know where they picked it, where it travels, where it goes, and who's bought it, right? So, do we want to get to that level? Uh, and I think that gets down to, you know, who controls that data? Who controls that information? Um, 23 and Me. you know, they're happy to give you a DNA, but now you've built a big database of everybody's DNA samples. And so there are biases built into algorithms. You know, if somebody has a propensity for cancer or somebody has a propensity for obesity, can they be discriminated against for employment and so? So I think the idea and the application of the technology is really important, and that's why the report calls for this uh, human in command of the technology.
7: Hi, Marissa Khurma from the Wilson Center. Um, I'm working with colleagues on a report um, on the Middle East and workforce development in general, so thank you very much for this report and the discussion. Um, I like the idea of national strategies because many governments, particularly in the Middle East, are unaware and also have limited resources. I was wondering what uh, the ILO has in its plans to uh, support national governments in, um, in basically delivering such national strategies to better understand the pathway forward. Thank you.
1: Okay, so it's an ILO question. <laughs> um, as I mentioned during the International Labour Conference this year, this report will be tabled. Um, And uh, I don't know if it will come out as some sort of recommendation or so, but the process of developing national strategies uh, is moving forward. Um, in the past, we've called it our decent work country strategies where we work with the uh, various actors on the ground. It's not just the labor, um, the labor uh, departments and so, but it is looking at law enforcement. It is looking at agriculture. It is looking at a, a number of educational institutions, as you can imagine. So we're going to have to broaden that discussion beyond our traditional partners. Um, and the governments themselves will have to take a great deal of responsibility about what does it mean uh, to have decent work in that country. Um, And it's not just for part of the society, you know, it has to be for all men and, well, let's put it the right way, women and men, Right? Because women are the ones who are normally at a deficit, women factor in very much into this report. Because if you don't have, you know, increased labor participation rates of women in the workforce, you're not going to actually uh, increase your economic output and uh, and the well-being by any measure. So, so there are prescriptive steps that are taking place. Um, there there are other processes going forward. For example, the UN. Uh, uh, works with uh, with governments on their National Development Assistance Framework, which then becomes the UNDAF, the UN Development Assistance Framework. Um, if they're not talking to the people in the Labor Department or in the Education Department, which unfortunately happens because labor is usually not as well funded as finance or commerce or other, other departments, and so um, that there will be no work. Uh, on work, uh, we won't be able to improve that. So you can have all the best infrastructure in the world, the great economic and in, uh, educational institutions, but unless people are benefiting from that, and there's a natu- there's a plan that links up the partners on the ground uh, to move that forward, it's it's uh, it's not going to work. No matter how many times you meet in Geneva or another beautiful location around the world. Federica,
0: I don't know if you want to say anything related to the your countries that volunteer to do this, and let me just add, maybe build it on Kevin's point, what i found is that, it's, that often you have very imperfect communication mm-hmm. between ministries, mm-hmm. even in very developed countries, and then mm-hmm. more so in undeveloped countries, mm-hmm. on this cluster of issues that need to be addressed that you've identified in your development report. Please.
2: Yeah. yeah. No, I was actually thinking, I've been traveling around MENA. Uh, significantly over the past months, and I, I find it a fascinating region. I think they have so much potential. But so, we did three regional events. In each event, we had the government sitting, the private sector, then some youth representative, and then the civil society. And there was a lot of energy around the room by the youth and by the civil society and the private sector. The government stays silent throughout, right? They avoid to commit on anything. So, I, I think, you know, as much as we could do, it is a, a way of finding the right incentives. You know, in, in many emerging markets, emerging countries, the problem is that there is a lot of bureaucracy, governments are corrupt, and you know, oftentimes they're a little bit short-sighted, they face a lot of, of issues, so it becomes difficult for them to to have an understanding or, or to, you know, think in terms of medium to long-term policy. So it, it's, a, it's a matter of finding the right incentives. So what we did with the human capital um, that uh, Ambassador Wen w- w- was mentioning. So we tried to change the incentives around the human capital, right? If you think about human capital, so it's of interest of ministers of health, ministers of education. Because what goes normally into human capital is health and education. So you go to a country, you ask the minister of finance, the, the one that control, the resources in a country to meet and talk about education, you know, they rarely meet with you. So so then we thought how we can change the incentive around it. So then what we did, we look at those um, investment in human capital and we try to translate the lack of investment in terms of um, let's say losses in productivity. So instead of saying country you learn X and the basic LT is that, we say okay, your score on human capital is 0.55 for country X and compare across many countries. And then what that 0.55 means that um, a child born today, right, when she turns 18 and she entered the labor market, she'll be only 15% as productive as she could be if she enjoy full health and education in that country. So then it resonates for them because they miss that 45% productivity to you know, a frontier, it's based on data. Uh, so, so that changed the incentive. So now, when we go, the countries volunteer to adopt this program, and they say, "Okay, we want to work with you for the next three years to understand how we can change those, those difficult to change outcomes." In you know, three years is just the beginning; it would take much longer. So therefore, you know, we improve our productivity. So so often it's really a way of understanding how you can change the incentives of policymakers. Technology could help because. It is true that we have all these difficulties in in organizing but but technology helps raise the voice right today even if you don't physically organize right you know with blogs with media right you can still raise the voice and, and create that noise that might also be you know for some countries, an incentive, I think, for policy makers. And that's the, the issue I was raising earlier for gender. I think when we travel and we speak with government, we haven't really found those incentives that change the mindset and say, okay, if I invest more in women, because you find... Developed countries where there is such discrimination, and still, you know, the country where there is growth, you find poor countries, MENA is, is an example, right? There is a huge discrimination and they face issues. But we have really found that, that incentive to, I think, um, to change the mindset around gender. Difficult, difficult task.
8: Thank you. Uh, My name is Maria Claudia Camacho from the Organization of American States and congratulations to the ILO for a great and very much anticipated report. In the Organization of American States, we work a lot with the Ministries of Labor and Ministries of Education in Latin America and the Caribbean. And around the whole discussion on the future of work is the call of better coordination between, of course, the world of labor and the world of education Mm -hmm. and making education not only of more quality and equity but relevance. But then the question arises as who has the information and who can talk and predict the skills for the future. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, of course you have a private sector that sometimes has more questions than answers in that regard. So we're asking our institutions to improve quality of workforce development strategies, educational systems, etc. But then uh, where is that reliable information, what exactly we need to train our, our yeah,
2: four, thank you. Should I go first? Which is a, an information that uh, we also struggle to have, by the way, when you think about the demand for skills, it, it's really hard because oftentimes firms, it's, it's hard when you think about the small firms that you find you know, in the develop, developing countries to understand what skills they needed. Uh, but I agree with you, I feel th- there is a lot of emphasis on the supply side right, how we train people, how we change university, but we forget that 90% of the jobs are in the private sector, right? So we forget to, to think that, okay, for these skills to be relevant, they need to be in demand. And who demands those skills? The firms. So what the firms want, who knows, right? Because that's, I think, it's, it's something that we're definitely missing. And, and, you know, we're thinking how we can better measure that um, it's, it's hard to classify, right? How we've been even trying to use LinkedIn for that. But they have, I think, a classification of uh, more than 2,000 skills, right? So it's very hard to, to classify that. But an, an approach that has been, um, let's say, proven to be innovative and successful is to link together the, the supply and the demand. So basically have the private sector involved in the um, training, in the education, and educators you know, kind of linked to the private sector. So they're called uh, knowledge hubs, which I find very fascinating. Um, it's basically builds on the idea of the Silicon Valley, right, where you have, you know, university and private sector together, and and they kind of it's it's a, almost a two-way dialogue, right? Because the private sector benefits from the innovative ideas that come from universities, and the university benefiting from the close collaboration with the private sector. And and uh, traveling in Mena, I was uh, uh, very impressed how you know, I think 30% of the unemployed are tertiary-educated people. So, you know, the people that are very highly educated. And then, so they come and they have energy, they want to find the jobs. And then there are, there are so many startup hubs, for example, in MENA. I was in Tunisia, was the last stop. And there was this huge hub they have for startups. And, and so I asked the two, have you ever, you know, come together, if you have a talk, like right? a startup with the young people that can't find a job. They never had any interaction. So, so I do think that we need to better measure skills, we need to do more, governments definitely need to act, but we can be a little bit more innovative. And there are plenty of examples of this knowledge hub that I mentioned. India has one, for example, Malaysia uh, has one. There was this uh, region in Czech Republic, the Bernal region, that was the poorest region in Europe. And then, uh, you know, just uh, kind of, uh, they were desperate. So they, they thought that they could do that. So they started investing. You need to invest in an ecosystem, because business don't come close to a university just because you have a university. You need to attract talent, you need to have a good business environment. So it's, it is an ecosystem. But they invest in that. Now it's the richest region in Europe. And it's, it's an innovation hub, right? So, so I think there are new ideas that, that we can experiment, but definitely we missed that connection between supply and demand.
3: Can, can I add to that as well? Um, from, from the foundation's perspective, I remember several years ago we, we looked at foundation spending in the job space, focused on youth employment, um, primarily in the U.S., but I think this is true globally as well. Something like 90% of philanthropy funding went to skills, education, training. Um, I think it was maybe even like 95 percent, but some large percentage, uh, and the the remainder went to a more demand side, making the connections with employers, working with employers. I don't know what the right number is, but I'm fairly sure it's not 9 to 1, right? We need to have more like building on the connections with employers, supporting people once they get into a job so they can hold the job and build their skills while they're working at the same time. Um, And just to recognize that education and skills are not the same thing. People get a lot of skills through work, through employment. There are a lot of highly skilled people that don't have high levels of education. And just recognizing that I think it's the ecosystem is, I think, the right point. What's a supportive skill ecosystem where you're connecting work, employers, with people who don't have jobs? There's something that needs to be unlocked there where there's under-attention paid to it, I think.
0: Um, sure. So in the United States, there are Dozens of examples. They aren't innovation centers, Mm -hmm. but they are centers where universities, local government, and employers talk once a month or once a quarter, and they actually talk about what they need. So it's not that you're innovating and developing something new. You're just identifying what you need now. Now, that doesn't solve everything, but it does solve a lot of the needs of those local employers and of the junior colleges and of the high schools and others, and of the local governments that want to create jobs, and a number of them have been very successful in previously not very successful economic areas. Not poor, not the poorest, but moderately successful growing. So there are a lot of models, and I'm sure there's some in Europe too, but it doesn't have to be an innovation center to do this. It's really just getting that dialogue going between the private sector, the public sector, the education sector, and having enough people on all the parts being willing to be flexible and adaptive as to what you teach and how you teach it. And the question is then scaling that, it seems to me, to other areas, including other countries. Mexico has this in Carretero. It's the one really good example that they have in, in Mexico. and So that's a, a Latin country. I just mentioned that. Um, so th- there's a lot you can do. And then if you can do innovation centers too, that's great. But it's hard to actually develop an innovation center. That takes a bit more to make it work. John, uh, Kevin.
1: Yeah, um- you answered it. <laughs> I mean, just, no, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, predicting skills. I mean, it, it's, it's always very difficult. But I, absolutely, the first thing is a dialogue between, you know, the businesses, the businesses and their investments, what they're looking at, looking at the government and how those structures are set up, uh, and also talking to educators. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you have to have that, uh, that dialogue go on. Secondly, finance, who's going to pay for it, right? I mean, I think that's everything that we look at in development. Uh, Um, For me, you know, if businesses are going to benefit from a a valued pipeline or a good pipeline of talent, I think that they have some skin in the game and they should be providing some uh, assistance on that as well. Um, In terms of uh, the learnability, it's not skills to a job, um, but it's learning how to learn. Uh, If it's just a skill to a job, it's a bit of a closed end. And I think now a lot of the educators are thinking about these broad spectrum skills that are more cognitive skills. You know, it's problem solving, it's teamwork, it's creative thinking, you know. It's things that we're not really good at education-wise, because as you kind of go up that ladder of education, you become much more specialized without having that broad spectrum of of what I think is being called learnability. And I think the last issue on that is uh, this issue of social protections. If people feel that they need to get a particular job because that's going to give me health benefits, education benefits, it's uh, you know uh, whatever else may be in a package in the remuneration and so um, benefit and that's provided by the company that person won't leave that company even if they're dissatisfied with their job and I always see these statistics about how millennials are so unhappy with the world of work because they don't have the ability to do what they want now some people talk about UBI universal basic income I don't necessarily think you know that's the right way forward but having some social protection floor where people have their health their education and these basic needs met um, I, I think that that has to be a part of the solution as well.
0: Okay, one final question right up here. Go ahead.
7: Uh, Linda Nett, Partner for Growth. Um, so I like the idea about how do you motivate change, and, and I think that's going to be probably a big job going forward um, based on this report. Um, have there been... Um, has there been studies, data, financial models developed that helps to make the business case? Because I think that's what policy makers, that's what businesses, that's what your private sector partners are going to want to see. And, And I heard, you know, in the remarks that you're going to increase income, increase labor productivity, increase spending, and increase economic growth. That's a pretty powerful argument you know, and if you can make that on a country by country basis, if you can make it on a state by state basis you know and and talk about the the savings from not not paying for unemployment, I think that would also help in the same way that that the world banks um, look at you know what are you losing in terms of productivity and what could you gain so any data, any <laughs> models, any, any good arguments that where you could you know, actually show what could be done?
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> simple question. I, I, I think we, we have a number of studies that show that. We, we have a, um, a program called Better Work, and this is a factory-level improvement project that works with international buyers and local suppliers. To ensure that uh, you know that people are treated well in the workplace, that they have nutritional uh, in, you know intake. You know, give you an example. You know, in Puerto Rico, where they have all of these. Uh, Uh, these factories that are made you know the women will get up at four in the morning they'll make breakfast for the kids and they'll save their portion of food for the children in the evening and so then you know they'll walk off to work you know seven eight kilometers by the time they get to work they've already done a full day's worth of work they get very tired they're not provided with a nutritional uh, sort of intake they get tired they sleep at the machine they may injure themselves and so that productivity goes down productivity goes down profitability goes down so I think looking at you know those people who are actually helping you generate wealth is really quite important we we do have studies that show that by providing a small uh, you know sort of uh, breakfast for them so they keep their caloric intake up is very good having you know uh, access to a infirmary that if they if they fall ill or they feel faint that they can go into uh, into the nurse and instead of creating a big kerfuffle where the ambulance comes up and they get driven off to the hospital and so um, the uh, other innovations are for example allowing the women in the local communities who are unable to go to work because of child care issues or elder care issues and so providing a little extra food that they sell at the commissary, then that creates a micro-enterprise, and then the women have a little extra money in their pocket because their conditions of work are better, and then they uh, take a taxi home, a little um, tuk-tuk, a little two-stroke uh, bike will come, and that creates another micro-enterprise. Uh, or, you know, so there, there are lots of examples at a small scale. I, I think one of the big issues is how do we scale that up and, and to take into account all the variables in that. So we do have examples, but again, I, I think there's no one big uh, uh, study that's going to prove it all.
2: So, just um, so, our most successful product, and you know, some people might disagree on that, is the Doing Business report, right? <laughs> so I see that. Now, you know, some people criticize the methodology, and I don't necessarily disagree on that, that criticism. But, but why Doing Business has been so successful, right? Because for a number of reasons. One, global comparison—that's what always incentivizes policymakers, right? You, they want to be compared with certain neighbors, with certain countries. Point two, speaks the language of policymakers Because oftentimes we come with very sophisticated analysis when we talk about total factor productivity, allocative efficiency, then you sit with the Minister X, and they don't understand. It just is a language that they don't speak. So, so what, what happens with, with, with these reports is that the policy dialogue, the policy action, is almost a two-step approach. You need the first step to open that policy dialogue. So doing business, it's, it's been good to open that dialogue. Right? Now, once that open, doing business look at a very narrow aspect, right? Which is the business environment for manufacturing in the capital city for firms, 50 employees and <clears throat> above, right? But then it has been amazing to, to attract the attention of policymakers and for them to show willingness and to take action to reform. Now, the trick is when, once that policy dialogue is open and you work with the government, then the local context kicks in. And, and you, know, you need to try to go beyond that narrow aspect to make sure you know, what we do right, benefits everybody, the growth is inclusive, like it's sustainable, it's long term, et cetera and and for, and that is the second step of the policy dialogue, where you really get into the context. but but again, doing business, like this is what we try to do with the human capital, is to you know find the right incentives and open that dialogue because, my experience with doing business is that we started to say, okay, how can I improve my starting a business indicator? And of course, they all get stuck on the rankings, like policymakers. But then it triggered, it brought a number of additional projects around it that went well beyond the, the indicators that are measured by doing business. So,
3: I, I would just add to that. Um, it's very concrete. Um, Zeynep Tom at MIT has done a lot of research on essentially high road business models. Um, showing that if you do treat your workers well, that actually can be good for business, shocking. Um, But she actually has a number of examples of like how companies do it differently and what that results in, in terms of not just practices, but actual profitability at the end of the day. So I think there's emerging work on this, not at the macro level, but at an individual company level, how it can make a difference to, to do things a little bit differently.
0: Good. Thank you all for coming. And thanks to our panel for a very, very interesting set of insights. Thank you. Gracias.